0: So, this morning, uh, I'd like to start off by telling a story. Um, I was probably about 12 years old, something like that, Um, and I was at Birchwood Baptist Church sitting in the back underneath the balcony. Um, Pastor Dan was preaching about our need for Jesus as Savior, and he ended his message with Like, so, you know, you bow your head, close your eyes. Usually that's like, yeah, do that. But this time uh, it's mandatory, right? Everyone has to keep their eyes closed the whole time. And then if you would like to pray a prayer, then you can raise your hand. And it went something like this. Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I invite you into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for our sins and rose again on the third day. Please walk with me and lead me away from sin. Amen. Did any of you ever pray that prayer? Yeah, at some point? I did that day, like probably for the 15th time or something like that. Uh, This time, like most times, there was a buildup to that prayer, and it was with this passage. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many an altar call has begun with that passage. And for me, when I was young, this passage, these words of Paul, had the capacity to bring me to tears. Um, Tears of, and I don't just say that, like I I would, I would cry, like tears of of relief and tears of fear. Relief because like this is talking about God saving, and that's good. Fear because whenever this passage was said and the prayer was said, do you guys remember the questions that came with it. First, there would be the obvious, like, you know, if you died today, would you end up in eternity, in heaven or in hell? But then there were the other ones that were like, maybe you've prayed this prayer before, but do you know that you meant it? Like, is there a sliver of doubt in your mind that maybe you didn't mean it? So then, you know, you quadruple check. You pray the prayer over and over and over again. And I'd be moved to tears of fear and then relief. Fear and relief. Until one day the tears dried up. Um, I think there were a couple reasons for that. As I got older, I started to trust God. I started to, like, you know, have something that looked like a, a real moving and vibrant relationship with him that wasn't just based on fear anymore. And I started to go like, I don't think God like, is going to get on to us about like, not pronouncing the words right or something like that. Maybe I don't need to quadruple check again. Also, the prayer kind of like fell out of vogue, right? When was the last time you ever heard anybody ask you to pray that prayer? Even in like my small, you know, I was in Bolivar, Missouri at a small Baptist school, at a small Baptist college, and nobody was asking me to pray that prayer anymore. So I didn't have much need for the prayer. But I also found that I didn't have much need for this passage anymore. Like at best, it was kind of like, a, like I guess this is telling me to think a thing. And that's not very exciting. Just to think a thing. And at worst, it was associated with all of the fear that I had all those years. So I just kind of didn't do anything with it. But this was so important to me. This was so central growing up to my relationship with God. So, if we don't pray the prayer anymore, we don't do the altar call. Do we have space for this, these words of Paul that seem like they've been pretty important? Or are they just the altar call passage? And as I sat with this and was studying it, I, I think I found something here. I think I found something moving and subversive and powerful and kind of off-putting. And I'd like to talk about that today if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Have you ever really stopped to think about what that means? Because we, like, it's just part of our declaration of faith. It's a thing that we say. But I feel like I can just kind of skim over it and be like, yeah, that's the line we don't really deal much in lords these days. Outside of this profession of faith, nobody's like, oh yeah, the the lord of Starbucks. uh, I don't know who that would be, the guy who owns it. Um, Nobody deals in lords, because lord is not an inherently religious term. Uh, If you had lived a couple thousand years ago, the profession Caesar is Lord would have come up all the time. Um, It was a really, really common. You'd hear it whenever you were dealing in any kind of like government or anything like with the government. Anytime you were doing business, you would declare Caesar is Lord. Anytime you heard like a town crier giving the news for the day, he'd declare Caesar is Lord. Um, Everybody said that all the time, knew it. So why did the early Christians riff off of this political declaration to make, like, this founding statement of faith. So I want to go back there. I want to try and go back there as best we can. So to do that, I'm going to need everybody get comfy. Get, you know, get into a comfy position and close your eyes. So I'll give you a second to do that. Find, find, your, find your zone. Now imagine this. You live in a small town in Greece or Rome or Palestine. Take your pick. The land is governed by rulers who have very little control over their people. It's incredibly dangerous to travel because bandits wait along the roads. It's not uncommon for people to exploit you and steal from you because they have the manpower to intimidate you, and there's no peacekeeping group to protect you. There's no police. The cities and nations of the world know little about each other, at least the normal people like you and me know little about each other. Because everyone speaks different languages. If someone wrongs you, kills a family member, let's say, something as horrible as that, all you can do is take it into your own hands and kill them back. And this is expected of you. Men are not expected to live long. Women are often taken as spoils of war. And war between clans, cities, and nations is just par for the course. The world is scary. It's an unknown place. And the gods are incredibly fickle in the way that they respond to your pleas for help. Then, a man named Julius Caesar changes everything. He musters the most powerful army that anyone has ever imagined. No one can stand up to it. Using this army, he unites the world. The entire world comes together under one banner, a truly unthinkable thing. A universal language is put into place and roads are built and patrolled. All of a sudden, a middle class begins to exist because it's possible to trade with other cities, to leave, and to try and find a better life. Roman soldiers begin to bring some peace to your world. And for most of you living in the empire, you'll never experience the sort of constant fighting your parents did. There are organized systems of courts that attempt to dole out justice. And now when powerful men attempt to strong-arm you, you have a shot at at things being made right. So Julius Caesar declares himself Lord and Savior of the world. And can you blame him? He did something that everyone thought was impossible. He brought peace to the world. He turned his name into a title that all of those who would follow in his footsteps would wear. Caesar after Caesar would rule the world as Lord, saving it from chaos. Now imagine this. One day, a traveling tent maker comes to your town and speaks in the square, saying something absurd. He says that Caesar is an imposter lord and savior of the world. He's not savior, but a Jewish rabbi who was killed by a governor under Caesar, he's the one saving the world. Caesar is a false ruler. In reality, he serves the dead rabbi, who was, by the way, raised from the dead by God. You can open your eyes. Are you getting how absurd this is? What makes this rabbi, Lord, and Savior? What invalidates Caesar's claim? Well, he says that he has a kingdom that is all around us. You just have to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. It grows into the world like a mustard seed. And it's found in children. It's found in those who give their riches away. It's found in the lowly and the poor and those who forgive their enemies. Let's recap this. These early Christians were saying that Rome and Caesar were making false claims of authority and power. They were saying that in reality it's this rabbi who was executed as a criminal who was ruler of the universe saving it from chaos and bringing justice and peace and life. His kingdom is all around accessible to everyone but it's easier to find if you're lowly if you're on the outside if you're powerless. This rabbi said that the peace that Caesar brought was a false peace because it was maintained by the sword and those who live by the sword die by it. He said that this peace that Caesar brought was a false peace because it could never bring the kind of internal peace that can change a person. He said that the justice that Caesar brought was not real justice because it favored the powerful and the rich, And he flipped that on its head. He said things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you starting to see how we've distorted this over the years? This isn't really feeling like a setup for an altar call. Well, there's nothing like horribly terrible about the altar call, I don't think the question that we're dealing with is how do I get out of hell and get into heaven? The stakes are a lot more immediate and real in our our life than that. The question is, how do I find hope and peace and life in the midst of chaos around me? How do I find some kind of something to orient my purpose in? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Swear off your allegiance to political powers that are claiming to save the world. They're wrong. Swear off your allegiance to Caesar, to Trump, to Obama, to America, to Democrats and Republicans. They're not the last hope of the world. They can't save it. Their promise to put the world back together is a lie because they don't understand how power works. This is still just as absurd a claim now as it was then. But it's what's required of us if we're going to follow Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to King Jesus, the king who washes the feet of his followers and expects his followers to do the exact same thing. Put your faith in his claim that he is moving to put the world back together in literal ways, by working through the small, by working through the powerless, by working through the lowly. Do we actually buy that? Back to the scriptures here. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. We trust God that believing, that that we believe that Jesus is making the world right, that he is who he says he is, and we're justified. We're moved from one kingdom to another. Sorry about that. But we also kind of screw up at living out our commitments to that kingdom. So we confess with our mouth. We say, like, this is what my life is about. This is, this is where my commitment lies. This is the kingdom that I belong to. And yes, I don't, I don't live it well all the time. But I put my faith in his claim. I put my trust, I put my hope in his claim that he is the one making the world right. And that is, where, that is the kingdom I want to live in. This is what's true. This is what's real. This is the way. This is the life. And we stumble and we fall. And we confess anew each day. Jesus is Lord. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. According to Rome, Caesar united all the people of the world. But the reality is something was still very wrong. There was still pain. There was still suffering. There was still oppression. And then Jesus comes along and makes this claim. Out of Jew and Gentile, out of all the peoples of the world, all the people who are very, very different from each other, people who are black and white, people who are rich and poor, people who are gay and straight, people who are very different from you and maybe you don't get along with. Those are the people who make up the kingdom of heaven. And we're made one people. And those differences that so easily divide us our commitments to Democrats or Republicans, our commitments to the nation that we belong to, those things fade into the background because the thing that defines us, the the thing that makes us who we are is our declaration, Jesus is Lord. He's putting the world back together. And now we become one people. One people out of many people who are very different from each other everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved when we move when we call on the name of the lord and are saved we move from one kingdom to another the constitution of america well fine is not our founding document in this nation we don't have to hate it or anything like that it can have great ideas we can even love living in america but ultimately we're not americans anymore Ultimately, the Constitution is not what defines us. Something else, something better, something more beautiful. And that's the hymn of Christ. That's our founding document. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Humility and smallness are the values that this kingdom is built on. As an American citizen, I have certain rights that I'm entitled to. But as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I choose to give up those rights. I choose to lay them down for the good of others, to serve and to love and to value others above myself. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. How and why can I do that? I can do that because the God who created the universe, the God who continues to create and sustain and bring life loves me and cares for me. I live in a safe world where I don't have to look out for myself anymore because I'm known and I'm loved and, and someone bigger than me, someone more powerful than me is looking out for me. So I don't have to protect my interests anymore. I lay them down. I give them up and i value others god raised jesus from the dead and if he did that surely he's going to raise us from the dead not just at the end of this age but he's going to re- he's going to bring our lives back from the dead and the world's safe and I can love others. I want to tie this all together as neatly as I can so there's no confusion. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we pledge our allegiance to God and His kingdom. We confess that God's kingdom, not Democrats or Republicans, not military might or social welfare, will save the world. We trust in this. We believe and we put our hope in God to make the world right. Then we join with him on that mission on his terms, out of humility, out of laying down our lives for those we walk alongside, loving our enemies, forgiving those who wrong for us, and caring for the least. Next week, I'm back. And I'm going to talk more in depth about what it means to live as a citizen of that kingdom. But for today, we're going to take an opportunity to pledge our allegiance to King Jesus anew.